You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow and its flitting, like a swallow and its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 542 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, January 21st, 2023. And that was, of course, Proverbs 26 in the English Standard Version. There's a lot there that we can gather into our minds, into our hearts to increase in understanding. And we should, we should gather all of it. But a few of these passages in particular, I want to key in on as we go through several items which have recently come to my attention, whether from the news or, as the case may be, links that were sent to me by my friend and neighbor, 
two houses down, J.P. Chavez. But let's just start with this idea that the fool is not to be answered according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I've been thinking a lot here the past couple of weeks, and really the past several months and the past several years, about how should Christians engage in political discourse? How should we read and listen? Also, how should we write and speak? And what should we do when there are controversial political questions, social questions, and you can't get away from them unless you just isolate yourself and keep the news off, turn off your computer, turn off your smartphone, turn off your TV, turn off the radio, tell everybody who tries to talk with you about what's going on in the news or the politics. You know, now I don't like to talk about politics. Yeah, tell them that. I, I hear that increasingly from people. Uh, you know, I, I don't really follow politics. I don't really watch the news. I don't really like to get into all that. You know, you could do that, but it's still there. And avoidance is not a healthy way to respond to problems. Now, you might prioritize. That's fine. But prioritization should not become a excuse for completely neglecting some things, which should be a priority. To say, I'm trying to prioritize my time, it begs the question, all right, well, how high of a priority do you assign to political engagement? How high of a priority do you assign to meaningfully taking note of what is going on in our community, in our government, in our schools, in the culture, in society, in your neighborhood? Sure, start there. In your church? Sure, start there. But you have to recognize that there are things coming into your neighborhood and into your church, which can be your business, are your business very often, even if only at the level of your family, your household, your business, your house being affected by them. And so it occurs to me that one of the reasons why I haven't podcasted quite so much this past week is because I spent time getting together with good friends of mine, men who are strong, capable, confident, opinionated, <laughs> who disagree with me, <laughs> who, who tell me, I don't think that's right. Oh, but what about this? Yeah, but that doesn't make sense. Getting together with them, chatting with them, even if I couldn't get together with them in person, and there were a few I wanted to get together with in person this week that I just couldn't make it work or they couldn't make it work, and that's all right. But one friend of mine, and I won't mention which one, not because I'm embarrassed, but because I want to be considerate, I want to be discreet, and I'm not trying to uh, overshare, but one friend of mine got together with me this week, and we spent a good five hours. I didn't think we were going to talk for five hours, but we talked for five hours. And then, oh, look at the time. I got to go, both of us said. Five hours we talked about our wanting to love God, to know God, to lead our families well, to do good work, to edify the church, and to think rightly about how our Christian faith should relate to politics. 
whether it should relate to politics. What should our engagement be? Should there be engagement? If there should be engagement, what does that look like? And how is it framed? And what are the principles? And what is the foundation? And what is the expected outcome? What is the hope there? And part of what came out of that conversation was the realization that a lot of Christians are quick to point to the most aggressive church they know, pastor they know, friend or family member they know, and cite their being overly aggressive or uncharitable or uncareful or too quick to believe things that confirm what they already think is correct or true of the situation. How quickly do so many Christians point to the worst examples they can think of as a kind of excuse for not engaging at all on any level? They point to the worst examples, the worst case scenario, and therefore justify inaction. I'm not going to read. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to pay attention. I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to do anything about any of these things because I can point to worst case scenarios as a risk. And then they just fall silent as though that is the end of the conversation. Of course, what more could be said? I just gave you a worst case scenario. I just told you that I've known Christians who got overly involved in these things or who did it poorly or it didn't work out or they looked ridiculous and we're all embarrassed for them, even if they're not embarrassed uh, for themselves. And therefore, I will continue on being disengaged. And this particular verse from Proverbs 26 came to mind as we were discussing this and kicking some things back and forth and not agreeing on as much as we challenged each other. But what is it that says here in verse 13? It says, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. And what does that mean? The sluggard points to a potential for some danger outside as justification for not going anywhere and not doing anything. The sluggard, the lazy man or woman, I suppose the case could be, but man in particular, it's funny how this is always male pronouns when we're reading about the sluggard in this chapter. Women get their turn to be called out in Proverbs. Don't get me wrong, but in Proverbs 26, we see masculine pronouns again and again with regards to fools and sluggards and those who are wise in their own eyes. But there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. That sentiment is, I think, very closely related to the excuse-making that many Christians give for being totally disengaged with current events and with the political process and with their civic responsibilities. They can point to the worst-case scenario. And let's be clear. If there were literally a lion on my block, on my street, in the streets, in the road, I could perhaps say, 
I'm going to stay inside. But even there, and you know, I think back to several months ago, there was some odd goings on in our neighborhood here in Greeley, Colorado. And I just heard from upstairs, I was working on laundry, I do believe, or maybe I was working from home doing my systems integration programming thing. And I hear my children and my wife downstairs talking excitedly, what's going on? And I come downstairs to hear this conversation unfolding and, oh, he's got blood on his face. And I'm like, what? So then I, I'm asking again, as, even though the question has already been asked by my wife and by my children, what's going on? I say, okay, what's going on? And I believe it was my son, Daniel. He says, I don't know, but there's this guy who's just walking down the street and he's got blood all over his face. I'm like, okay, stay inside. And come to find out, the police were looking for this fella and our neighbor's caddy corner on this block on the backside of our house across the way, diagonally, had yelled across to my kids who were in the backyard that the police are looking for this guy. Stay inside. And so what did I do? Well, first, I made sure that all of my kids are inside, that my wife was inside. Second, I looked through the windows. So I'm looking out. I'm not just thinking that my business is in here, but I'm looking out the windows because I want to see, is this guy coming up to the door? Is he going to try and get into the house? I told my older sons, I said, I want you to go and lock all of the outside doors that get into the house, lock the door in the laundry room, the back door, and then go down to the basement as well and make sure that door is locked in all of the locked possibilities, you know, all of the places that we can lock these doors. Let's make sure that they're all locked because I don't want some guy who's trying to stay away from the cops, trying to get into the house, taking hostages, being weird. Maybe he's on drugs. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe he's wanted. It's not going to be my house. So once that was established, that was what? Step two, step three. I went and got my gun and the holster. And I put my gun in my holster and I made sure I had a round in the chamber and put my shirt in such a way that it was untucked and covering. And then I went out the front door, cautiously looking around, situational awareness. I see my neighbor across the street, Paul Espinoza, former Marine, appliance repairman, also walking down the street in the direction of where we had seen this guy go around the block. And I saw him. Yeah. He had blood all over his face. Like he'd gotten kicked or punched or hit with something. And we got just right around the corner and looked down and there are the cops and this suspect or whatever he was handcuffed on his belly on the sidewalk being interviewed but I think to myself, even if that was a lion in the streets, a lion in the road, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, my business isn't here. My business isn't out there. The street is not my problem. The road is not my problem. No, that's lazy because we got to go outside at some point. We can't just stay in here forever. And oh, by the way, there are other kids. There are other people out in the neighborhood who I have some responsibility for. 
maybe not as much responsibility as I do for my wife and my children. I'm going to make sure that they are safe first. But then once that's established, I do have a responsibility for my neighbor's kids across the street who aren't being called in. Their parents probably don't know that there's anything to be concerned about. They're out in the street. I do have a responsibility for my neighbor across the street who is also going to scope this out, check it out, what's going on, engage. So I look at this here in Proverbs 26, and I think even if it is literally a lion in the street, not that there could be, not that there might be, not that there have been sightings, but there's literally a lion in the streets. A virtuous man is going to arm himself and go out there and check it out. And if that lion shows aggression, he's going to take action against that lion. If that lion is in the streets and I see it, well, I would rather deal with it now than wait for it to jump me when I'm not looking, when I do need to go out of my house at some future point. You don't wait until the lion is on your back. Then it's too late. And then hopefully your neighbor is more concerned with your welfare than you were for his welfare. So I think that Proverbs 26.13 is not the example for us to follow. Look at 15 as well. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. What is this talking about? This is talking about him being so lazy that he doesn't even want to expend the effort, put the work into making his arm move from his plate to his mouth. That's how lazy this guy is. But you might say, what about Proverbs twenty six seventeen, Same chapter. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. <laughs> Which is, this is a great word picture. Proverbs is full of these. You know, imagine some stray dog. You don't know this dog. You don't know if it's a nice dog, if it's a bad dog. You don't know if it's rabid. You don't know if it's got rabies. You, you don't know if it's going to bite you, attack you. You don't, you know, you wouldn't just grab some random dog. Not if you have sense, you're not going to grab some random dog. You don't know by the ears, because what's it going to do? Well, you have no idea. Anything could happen. And if you're just messing around and you're not thinking about the implications, you're going to get hurt sooner or later. A lot of people, if they don't fall into the, there's a lion in the streets, there's a lion in the road, category with regards to their civic engagement, they have an appropriate, perhaps, concern, which has been inflated, that they don't want to interpose themselves into other people's conflicts. And it would take too much to find out who's right and who's wrong. These two are bickering back and forth and they're trading accusations. I I don't have time for this. I got to get to work. I got to get the house cleaned. I got to pay bills. I got to run errands. I got to go to the grocery store. I don't have time for this. On some level, that's appropriate, but we need to understand when it is someone else's fight and when this is actually our responsibility. Now, another passage here that I think pertains is verse six. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. In our form of government, We, at least in theory, elect our representatives to government and they go on our behalf and they communicate the values that we 
have elected them to communicate. And if they lie and they say that their principles are other than what they actually are, just to get our vote, that's one thing. Watch out for that. But if they go and are foolish and they're communicating the message from us, their constituents, and we know on the front end that they are a fool and we send them anyways, we are cutting off our own feet and drinking violence. What does that mean? To cut off your own feet. That means that you are impairing your ability. You are handicapping your ability to go anywhere in life, or it's going to be a sad, pitiful thing. You're going to be unstable if you try and stand on your nubs, but more probably you're going to be in a wheelchair. You're going to be dragging yourself around on the ground on your hands and your backside. It'll be a very vulnerable position for the rest of your life. Drinking violence. If you send a fool to be your messenger, you're drinking violence. What does that mean? That means you are filling up a cup of wrath, which is going to be poured out by the people you are sending that fool to communicate with, to message with. And so you have to pay attention. If we're sending messengers, we have to pay attention to whether our messengers are fools, whether they are blind guides, whether they are sluggards. They enjoy the comfort and security which comes with the position that we put them in, but they don't want the work, actually. They want all the benefits. They don't want any of the responsibilities. How can we know whether we have chosen one kind or the other, whether the virtuous man or the fool, the sluggard? We have to pay attention. We have to watch. We have to listen. We have to know the difference between wisdom and folly. We have to know what needs to be worked on. In all toil, there is a profit, by the way. In all toil. But mere talk tends only to poverty. What that means is if we're picking people who just talk really well, but they never do any work, we are sending sluggards and fools. Oh, they talk purdy. Uh, yeah, and they get absolutely bupkis accomplished. And that's a problem. And that's a bad thing. But I think another piece here is where so many of us who are Christians look at the political situation and we say, there's so much tomfoolery in politics and in the media and in the news cycle. I don't want to answer a fool according to his folly, like verse four says, lest I be like him. I'm going to be just as bad as the people I'm answering if I answer them. It's a waste of time. Why bother? But read on. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Why is that a big deal? Because if he's wise in his own eyes, then he's really, truly hopeless. He is in a bad state of affairs. And if he's the one leading, and we're all in a bad state of affairs. And if we're excessively nice and a little bit lazy and a little bit passive and a little bit unwise, with regards to these things, we'll say, yeah, but that's not very nice. It's not very nice to think that some people are foolish or to say that some people are sluggards. That's not very nice. I would say, take it up with God. These are categories that we are given. We cannot glean any benefit whatsoever from passages like Proverbs 26 if we reject 
the category of fool and we reject the category of sluggard or refuse to identify who the fools are, who the sluggards are. But I think a lot of this is laziness and it is being wise in our own eyes. When we excuse our own laziness, our own passivity, we are wise in our own eyes. We think that our excuses are very reasonable and they're not. You know, I grew up for a good portion of my childhood in Eastern Montana and a few years in Western Montana as well. And I remember when I was a kid, we lived not far from Glacier National Park and there were mountain lions, there were grizzly bears. Occasionally mountain lions and grizzly bears would come down out of the mountains and eat some hiker or some unattended child. And that was concerning to my parents. That, that prospect did not thrill them that my brother or I would get eaten by a grizzly bear or a mountain lion. And we had a dog. Her name was Goldie. She was a golden retriever. Just the sweetest, except towards cats. Hated cats. Did not like cats. But everybody else, everything else, everybody else, she was great. But she wasn't a very big dog, right? She's beautiful, not very big. And so when we moved to the house at Lake Blaine, my parents bought a Great Pyrenean mountain dog, also known as a Great Pyrenees. Just a little pup, but she grew quick enough. And pretty soon she was bigger than Goldie. Goldie didn't quite like that, but once the weight difference and size difference caught up, there wasn't much she could do about it except bare her teeth and tense up. Daisy was a sweetheart as well, but Daisy was a big dog. It was a hundred pounds of long white hair, mostly white hair and drool. She drooled like crazy. But the big idea was that if a predator threatened my brother or I ever out in the yard, Daisy would protect my brother and I. So what my parents didn't do is they didn't say, we'll deal with that when the mountain lion comes, when the grizzly bear comes. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, when the mountain lion has actually jumped on our son and dragged him off. When the grizzly bear is actually mauling a member of our family, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. No, they saw the potential for danger based on where we lived in proximity to the mountains and the woods and wildlife, predatory wildlife. And they got ahead of it. And we never had any issues with mountain lions or grizzly bears coming down. And we saw bears from time to time as we were driving back and forth across the state. But the biggest problem we had, and I remember this distinctly, was our next-door neighbor's dogs. So our next-door neighbor had a Rottweiler and a Newfoundland. And both are good-sized animals. And he didn't control them very well, and they weren't properly acclimated to children. They were mean dogs. And I distinctly remember them getting out one day and coming after my brother and I as we were going out into the snow, or were about to, and they tried to attack us. And so an important thing to remember here is even just thinking in terms of we're going to get ahead of potential threats or potential dangers. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. You have to think about 
the potential for other people's precautions not being diligent enough. Maybe their precautions are not driven by character and integrity and a sense of responsibility for their community, their neighbors, their neighbor's children. You know, when we put it in terms of wildlife and guard dogs, good guard dogs and bad guard dogs, it's a lot easier to understand. I think that's part of why Proverbs 26 uses some of these examples. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own. is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Common sense will tell you what an endless barrage of words and phrases might not convince you of. You grab some strange dog by the ears, you have no idea what you're going to get next. (laughs) Well, so also with regards to our civic engagement, either A, we might have precautions if we have a very, very narrow view of what our responsibility is. We might have precautions which are actually doing harm and putting at risk the people around us. And we've got to think about that. But so also other people's precautions might be so asthmatic, so hypervigilant that they would negatively impact our ability to meet our responsibilities, our ability to be safe and prosperous, happy, uninjured. And that's where civic engagement comes into play. And if we say that civics, politics, the business of the polis, the welfare of the city is none of ours, we should take care that we are not being wise in our own eyes, but actually foolish and sluggards. We need to take care in that regard. Moving on, you may or may not know that there has been some public beef here the past week between Stephen Crowder and the Daily Wire, particularly the CEO, co-founder of the Daily Wire, Jeremy Boring. And I've watched some of the videos, some of the explanations back and forth. Stephen Crowder came out and did this big video, 30-minute, going through a potential contract that some big conservative media outlet had offered him. He didn't say who the media outlet was, but he said, here are the terms, and they basically are in league with big tech. They're complicit with big tech censorship because they are requiring their top talent to sign these contracts that say, if you get demonetized, if you get banned, if you start losing money because big tech is censoring you or our advertisers boycott you, then we're going to cut your compensation by this much and this much and this much and this much until it's almost nothing. So don't get banned on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Also, don't say things, do things that are going to lead to a boycott of advertising with you and with us. And Crowder, he's a free agent. He recently left the blaze. His contract was up and they mutually agreed. It was time to part ways and come to find out that the anonymous big conservative media outlet that had offered Crowder $50 million over four years to come work with them was the Daily Wire. It was Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro. And so Jeremy Boring did a video saying, it's us. Crowder had teased that he might 
say who had offered him this contract, but he didn't want to do that. And he was calling on them to do the right thing. Don't make me say who it is. But he's obviously getting ready to out them after getting everybody's attention. And Jeremy Boring, I think wisely, I think shrewdly, I think this was a shrewd business move. He does a video where he just very transparently goes through the contract line by line by line and explains, one, some of these terms we could have negotiated. You could have said, I don't like that. Let's change this. Let's reword that. Let's strike that. Also, some of these terms are entirely reasonable, and here's how, and here's why. And this is where it pays to remember in the midst of a conflict where you don't know all the details, but you know that there are cross-purposes, there are upset feelings, to remember that the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. Jeremy Boring going through the contract item by item, saying, hey, this is us, and actually we're very offended We respect Steven Crowder. We've known him for a long time. He does great work. He's very talented. We want him, wanted him. (laughs) It's not going to happen now, but they wanted him to join the Daily Wire and be part of their network. And we're very offended by a number of the things that he said in characterizing what we do. Crowder apparently responded to that video playing a phone conversation, private phone conversation that he and Jeremy Boring had. Ben Shapiro did a video replying and very offended, very upset, very angry, feeling very betrayed by Steven Crowder. And you know what? It can be true all at the same time that the Daily Wire is doing some really great things, that they are a business, that they are not a nonprofit, that they are not a charity that they need to make money, that they have decisions to make, that they are free to make, and also that conservatives, many conservatives, would feel uncomfortable and even disillusioned by the terms of a even potential contract that the Daily Wire requires Jordan Peterson, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Michael Knowles, Andrew Clavin to sign in order to work for them and work with them. Tim Poole did a video as well. He was talking through these kinds of contracts that are all too common and what they can be is golden handcuffs. We're going to pay you all this money because you are somebody with a voice. You are somebody who's influential and the terms of the contract say that we can shut you up anytime we want to, anytime we need to, or else take the money or else haul you into court. And so there is a validity, in my view, to Crowder's concerns about some of the terms of the contract that the Daily Wire put in front of him. Even if it was a preliminary contract, some of the terms are concerning, highly uncomfortable. Whether it's intended, whether it's even conceived of as being, by extension, big tech being able to throttle these big conservative voices, that's the result. That big tech could latch on to anything that was meaningfully threatening to the progressive leftist globalist agenda as an excuse to destroy top conservative commentators' reach, therefore their ability to make money, therefore their ability to keep on providing the commentary. Or At least that is the claim. 
And let me tell you, this is the biggest reason why I resist some advice. It's not that I don't consider it. It's not that I don't see ways in which it would be potentially more successful than what I'm doing. But I resist some kinds of advice that frame success in narrow terms and potentially involve compromising on the core of what I'm saying and why I'm saying it, how I'm saying it, if what I'm saying is what I actually believe to be true and necessary to be said, and I don't hear others saying it. It would seem as though some of the reasons I don't hear other intelligent, well-spoken, well-connected, well-informed, well-funded conservative political commentary getting into what I'm getting into, the way that I'm getting into it, is because those guys are wearing golden handcuffs. And big tech, run by folks who are very hostile to our convictions, our ideology, our principles, our view of the world, our view of God, our view of one another, our view of ourselves, big tech has the kill switch. And knowing that shrewd business people like Jeremy Boring, and that's not an insult. He's a good businessman. I think he is a genuine conservative. They make the pragmatic prudential decision, and it will always put something of a ceiling on how effective these commentators can be. And we know it. As listeners, I I agree with Crowder here. We know that there's something throttling what these guys are saying. And it's, this is why I don't quit my day job. This is why as difficult as it can be sometimes to balance recording a podcast or reading or writing, working on my book with also going to work, my real work, my nine to five, my day job to put food on the table, to put a roof over our heads, as difficult as it can be in the long run, I keep doing that because I'm able to maintain independence and I'm able to say what I believe I ought to be saying. Now, I could still be censored. I think I have been more than just what I know for sure, like my 12 or 24-hour Twitter suspension that's now approaching 10 months. I think I have been shadow banned other cases in other times, but I know I'm reaching some people. And I don't say there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets, therefore, I'm going to join everyone else who's doing nothing, saying nothing, defining very narrowly what is and isn't their business. Now, to be fair to Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro, who I like very much, I like them very much, they offered a lot of money to Crowder. Some of the terms he's complaining about, I think he is overly amped up. I'm not trying to get involved in something that is somebody else's quarrel here, but they've made it public. So now it's all our problem as conservatives. And I'm just trying to think through what would I do if I were in Crowder's position? Not that I foresee this ever happening, but if I were offered $50 million to produce a show this many days a week, produce this additional bonus content, what would I do if I were offered $50 million? And to be very clear, I've never made any significant amount of money off of this podcast. Anchor FM was paying me a little bit per play to run an advertisement early on. And then they stopped. I don't know. I'm not sure why. 
but I made 50 bucks, I think it was, from that. Less money than what I spent to get the logo made for the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I went on Fiverr, and I think that was 75 bucks. And we're not even talking the cost of microphone and website, web development that I did myself. We're not even talking Canva subscription. I don't make money doing this. I do this for the love of it. I do this because I believe it's what's right. I do this for my wife and my children. I do this for my friends and my family. If anyone else besides is helped, great. That's a bonus. Because, hey, you know what? There is a lion in the streets. There is a lion in the road. And that lion needs to be engaged. That lion needs to be actioned. Like the internal docs over at Twitter use the term. Whenever there's a problematic tweet that they're mulling a suspension for or shadow banning over or terminating somebody's account for, that lion needs to be actioned. And we have to action it. It can be entirely true, and it is, that the Daily Wire, they are a private company. They are a for-profit corporation. They can be doing good things and also making money at the same time. That's fine. That is fine. I am a subscriber to the Daily Wire. I don't sign up for Crowder uh, Mug Club and all that because I listen, right? He's got some good things to say. He does an entertaining job, but he goes too far sometimes. In my view, he is he's overboard. He crosses a line now and then that I don't think he should cross when it comes to propriety. So I don't, I don't want to censor him. I don't believe he should be demonetized and shadow banned and kicked off of YouTube, and kicked off of Twitter and kicked off of Facebook. I don't believe any of that. I want him to have the right to say what he will say, even if I find it offensive sometimes or obnoxious other times, so that I am free to disagree with him and maybe even convince him. The Daily Wire is a for-profit corporation that can do good and also make money at the same time because that's part of how you keep on doing the good thing. You've got to make money. You've got to pay the bills somehow. You've got to hire these people and allow them to do their work full-time. The Daily Wire is free to do what they're doing the way that they're doing it, and their subscribers are free to continue subscribing or not if they're disturbed by this. To give credit where credit is due, it seems to me as though Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro were very transparent. I think Crowder got a little worked up, but he also has a point with regards to the potential for this being a muzzling Tim pool his calling these golden handcuffs. I don't think that's a slave contract. $50 million. Are you kidding me for crying out loud? $50 million. That's not a slave contract. Now you sound like the NFL players who say that they're modern day slaves all the while they live in multi, multi million dollar mansions and they drive Maseratis and Lamborghinis. They have a ridiculous amount of they have a ridiculous amount of money. They're not slaves. Come on. I make six figures. You're gonna be making eight potentially. You're not a slave. But that doesn't mean that you have to sign the contract either. Right? The Daily Wire, they were free to offer the deal that they did. Steven Crowder was free to say no, no, thank you, and here's why. And he's definitely also free to do his own thing. Now, I don't like 
the way that this back and forth is being handled in some regards, but I do believe it's important for us as viewers, as readers, as listeners of conservative commentary and news to understand that part of the ceiling is actually, whether directly or indirectly, based on what big tech is going to permit, period. The self-censoring is written into the contract. It is. Crowder's right on that. Jeremy Boring says, well, Rumble, yeah, Crowder's over at Rumble. He's trying to make that a thing. It's not quite there yet. I hope it becomes a thing, but it's not there yet. And so it is what it is. And so we have to just kind of play the game the way that YouTube is requiring us to. And I've talked, and and this is great stuff, right? Actually, some of this being brought out into the open, I, I think that the tone and the tenor and some of the personal and taking personal back and forth, that that we could do without. But the receipts and the discourse back and forth about, well, hey, like, okay, what is what is it you're actually asking me to sign? And what is it that we've actually offered? And what are the reasons both and for yes or no and why and why not? That stuff actually is extraordinarily helpful if we know what to do with it. And so I hope that Crowder and Poole and Shapiro and Boring and others, as they're engaged in this conversation, that I, I hope that they see how eye-opening hearing all of this can be for good or for ill, and I hope they use it for good. That's all I'll say about it for right now. You can go check out the videos back and forth. Come to your own conclusions if you want to. As for me, I think bigger fish to fry are the leftist, godless commies who are trying to take over the world. I I think we have bigger fish to fry. I think that we need to deal with them and their effects and their accessories. Joel Abbott over at notthebee.com has a post up from three days ago. This gay activist couple allegedly raped the boys they adopted from a Christian special needs agency, pimped them out, and boasted about it boasted about it. Yes, you heard that right. Boasted about it on social media. How is it that I get suspended for 10 months from Twitter for saying, for tweeting in reply to Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee, with all due respect at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. I'm banned for 10 months, but this gay activist couple literally raped two adopted boys and pimped them out to their friends and bragged about it on social media. How is that? This is something that was warned about. This is something that Christians, outspoken Christians who've been muzzled like myself, have been penalized for saying because supposedly it's homophobic, supposedly it's bigoted to reason that Men and women who loudly tell you that they have no constraints on their sexual appetites except their imagination will also, when they adopt children, do whatever enters their imagination to do, whatever pleases them to do with those children. It stands to reason that if they're telling you that they have no sexual ethic, they have no sexual morality, except that they get to do whatever they feel like, whenever they feel like, to whoever they feel like, with whoever they feel like, and don't you dare tell them no, they're going to become rapists and molesters and pedophiles when that becomes the 
next thrill. And these guys did. And they're not the only ones. They're just not. This is evil. And if it doesn't boil your blood, there's something wrong with you. You might need to check your pulse. Moving on. Theblaze.com, Courtney Wheel, also posted a couple of days ago. Graphic sex ed program endorsed by Planned Parenthood taught in some Idaho middle schools. Quote, keep your condom on until you ejaculate, end quote. And I'm sorry if that's too much information, but that's literally what's in the sex ed material for Idaho middle schoolers. Yes, you heard that right. Middle schoolers. As a video, I'm going to play the audio from For You Explains. Take a listen. Planned Parenthood endorsed sex education curriculum has infiltrated Idaho schools. In fact, Idaho's public health officials with the North Central Health District are encouraging middle schoolers to have sex. Now, after public records request, we've discovered that 8th grade students in Moscow, Idaho's middle school have been shown graphic condom demonstrations. The video, produced by Trojan Condoms, is part of the Planned Parenthood-endorsed sex education curriculum called Reducing the Risk. This video was part of the sex education program for several years, and it may have been shown to students in other schools in the district. Idaho law and standards allow only abstinence or until marriage sex education. These public health presentations, however, teach children that anal sex, oral sex, sexual fantasy, masturbation, and abortifacients such as Plan B are perfectly acceptable for middle schoolers. This is in total defiance of Idaho law. The curriculum also includes teaching young children about gender identity and transgender ideology. Out of the 120 PowerPoint slides, there's just one mention of marriage. 120 slides. One mention over a dozen mentions of anal or oral sex. Government employees are violating state law, and this Planned Parenthood-endorsed curriculum is still being taught in at least 13 other schools. If you are a parent in Idaho, or just a concerned citizen, we need your help to continue to uncover what is going on in our schools. The future of our state depends on it. And there you have it. And this is where I will say a couple of things, and then I'm going to play another clip for you, this one from Project Veritas. But before I do, the future of the state of Idaho is important. The fact that laws are being broken by the people who are supposed to be teaching your children in Idaho, Idahoans, about civics, among other things, the people who are supposed to be teaching your children civics are ignoring the laws that pertain to how they teach your children about sex as middle schoolers. They are promoting fornication as normal and encouraging middle schoolers to engage with condoms. Unless you want to get pregnant or get an STI or an STD, you don't need to be first and foremost concerned with the future of the state of Idaho, you need to be first and foremost concerned with the state of your home and your children and their souls and what you will answer almighty God when he one day asks you about these things and your engagement or lack thereof on them. First and foremost, 
you should be concerned, not about the prudential question of, well, but how much money would we miss out on as a household if my wife quit her job and stayed home with the kids and homeschooled them while I try to make ends meet just with my own income? What would that do to our friendships with people that our kids go to school with their kids and we see each other at sports events and fundraisers? The prudential questions are killing conservatism. Undue concern with what is regarded as shrewd business decision-making, that is what is killing the ability of conservatism to succeed. It makes all of us into controlled opposition, unless we're willing to say the principle is what comes first, unless we have a right understanding of the order of operations. First and foremost, we have a responsibility to God, thereafter to our spouse, thereafter to our children, thereafter to anybody else who is a member of our household, thereafter to our extended relatives, our church family, our neighbors. And you might say, well, yeah, I am responsible to the members of my own household to provide, to protect. What does it do for provision and protection if my wife quits her job, stays home and homeschools the kids? What does it do to my providing and protecting if we are ostracized or alienated? And this is where the church has to step up and be supportive of the decision to homeschool and encourage and do not ostracize and not pile on and do not shrug and say, well, it doesn't really matter what you choose. There's a laziness to us saying that all the decisions that we are free to make are equally valid, equally virtuous, equally noble, will all have an equally good outcome. There's a laziness to that. We have to get our kids out of the public schools. If the public schools are teaching your middle schooler to have sex with other middle schoolers, what are you waiting for? If the public schools are requiring that your daughter share a restroom, a locker room, even the showering space with a boy who claims that he's a girl, what are you waiting for? If the public schools are teaching your child to hate their own country, to hate themselves and their family just because of the color of their skin, where their ancestors came from, to feel guilty and ashamed of who they are because that feeling of guilt and shame will make them useful pawns in a larger globalist agenda, a larger Marxist agenda to redistribute wealth and power according to supposed diversity, equity, inclusivity guidelines. What are you waiting for? Now, really, like, where's the line? If the line has not been crossed, is there a line? Here's another video I'm going to play for you of an activist Project Veritas sat down with boasting about selling CRT-infused curriculum in the state of Georgia to indoctrinate school children in Georgia, even though that is illegal. Take a listen. If you don't say the word for the grace period, you can technically teach it. And it's amazing how you've gotten schools to purchase a curriculum. And they don't even know what's going on. I always have a good salesman, but I'm also an evil salesman. 
like so bad. So the, the public schools have the state funding, right? I do. So the state is basically paying for your curriculum without knowing what's in it. Does your your curriculum have critical race theory in it? Yep. And the government doesn't know. And they, they have no clue. And I'm like... In order to make sure it's under the radar, how do you? This is DEI work. Schools in Georgia have your curriculum. Two, two districts actually. Two so, two county, um, and then five county. Wait, your curriculum that is in the schools here in Georgia is just kindergarten? It's just it's one of here kindergarten. Yeah, but so cool. So you, your CRT stuff is for sure. kindergarten. It's so good. It's like he's like such an idiot. Like his wife is a lot of stuff in education here. He's a former teacher. What do you think she would do if she found out? Oh, I would get nailed. What about these parents who might push back after getting it? Who cares? I'm not part of the system. I can't lose my. I'm not gonna lose my job, girl. Worst that's gonna happen is y'all gonna be upset, and I shared some knowledge. That's the worst that's gonna happen. And there you go. Now you may recall, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, I've talked about some mainstream Christian literature, some mainstream books that have been recommended in my circles. I I know a lot of people, friends and family, I respect, I value, I love, who have recommended these books, who don't necessarily look for exactly what this evil salesman is bragging about with regards to school curriculum. Now, let me positive question. Let me ask you this. If the woke social justice warrior, leftist, Marxist folk see a value in putting radical comprehensive sex education material, radical critical race theory material into our public schools for kindergarten on up to 10th grade and beyond, to win the hearts and minds of America's children so that in a generation they will have won those children's votes as they become adults who can vote. If the left can see a value in putting these messages into the curriculum for the public schools, but not calling it critical race theory, not using the specific terms, but communicating the ideas with paraphrases and euphemisms and nuance and suggestion more than explicit claim. The power of the soft cell. A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. If they can do that in the schools, then what makes you think they wouldn't be also doing that in the church through Christian publishing houses, through Christian radio, through Christian music, through resources and websites and materials for pastors and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders. What makes you think that they wouldn't put CRT and gender theory into material for the church to be won over, hearts and minds to the leftist worldview? Now, there's this book woke church that I've talked about on this podcast. I read it. And the the biggest reason I read it was because I was trying to find evidence one way or the other, either to confirm or to rebut a suspicion I had regarding Paul David Tripp. 
at his book, Lead, 12 Gospel Principles for Leading in Christ's Church. And it turns out, as I did the digging, that Paul David Tripp's pastor is a certain Eric Mason, Dr. Eric Mason, who wrote the book, Woke Church. He literally wrote the book, Woke Church. And if you read Woke Church, what you will find is that the term critical race theory is not explicitly used to convey Eric Mason's ideas, his values, his worldview. But the idea is there. If you know what critical race theory is, you know that he's communicating it. Same also with regards to the androgenizing egalitarian premise of gender theory and works like lead, the assumptions, the presuppositions are worked in with paraphrase exactly like Quentin Bostic is explaining to the Project Veritas journalist. And I quote, if you don't say the word critical race theory, you can teach it. I'm an evil salesman. They have no clue. If you don't say the word critical race theory, you can teach it because it's against the law to use that magical phrase. Get your kids out. Get your kids out. Also, it's not enough to just get your kids out because you need to pay attention. You need to not be a sluggard and you need to not be a fool with regards to how pervasive, how all-encompassing, how comprehensive these ideas are intended to be not just here in America, but around the world. This is a global agenda. It's a Marxist agenda. It's the ideals of the French Revolution carried on through Karl Marx, applied in the Soviet Union and Mao's communist China, now in the U.S., so that we will push it to everyone. In other news, I was recommended a certain John Taylor Gatto who I intend to do some reading of soon. I haven't yet, but I'll just give you a little teaser. There's an essay written by him from back in December of 1992 titled Confederacy of Dunces, the Tyranny of Compulsory Schooling. And John Gatto, he was an award-winning teacher, taught for 26 years in the public schools, and was really, really troubled by what he observed, what he saw. Award-winning, but nevertheless, and maybe all the more, had to speak out about the nature of public education. So a seventh grade teacher, Gatto, has been named New York City Teacher of the Year and New York State Teacher of the Year, praised by leaders as diverse as Ronald Reagan and Mario Cuomo. He's a political maverick whose views defy easy categorization. Here's some of what Gatto writes in his essay from 1992. And I quote, let me speak to you about dumbness, because that is what schools teach best. Old-fashioned dumbness used to be simple ignorance. You didn't know something, but there were ways to find out if you wanted to. Government-controlled schooling didn't eliminate dumbness. In fact, we now know that people read more fluently before we had forced schooling, but dumbness was transformed. Now dumb people aren't just ignorant, they're the victims of the non-thought of secondhand ideas. Dumb people are now well-informed about the opinions of Time Magazine and CBS, the New York Times, and the president. Their job is to choose which pre-thought thoughts, which received opinions they like best. The elite in this new empire of ignorance are those who know the most pre-thought thoughts. 
Mass dumbness is vital to modern society. The dumb person is wonderfully flexible clay for psychological shaping by market research, government policymakers, public opinion leaders, and any other interest group. The more pre-thought thoughts a person has memorized, the easier it is to predict what choices he or she will make. What dumb people cannot do is think for themselves or ever be alone for very long without feeling crazy. That is the whole point of national forced schooling. We aren't supposed to be able to think for ourselves because independent thinking gets in the way of professional thinking, which is believed to follow rules of scientific precision. Modern scientific stupidity masquerades as intellectual knowledge, which it is not. Real knowledge has to be earned by hard and painful thinking. It can't be generated in group discussions or group therapies, but only in lonely sessions with yourself. Real knowledge is earned only by ceaseless questioning of yourself and others and by the labor of independent verification. You can't buy it from a government agent, a social worker, a psychologist, a licensed specialist, or a school teacher. There isn't a public school in this country set up to allow the discovery of real knowledge, not even the best ones. Although here and there, individual teachers like guerrilla fighters sabotage the system and work toward this ideal, but since schools are set up to classify people rather than to see them as unique, even the best school teachers are strictly limited in the amount of questioning they can tolerate. The new dumbness, the non-thought of received ideas, is much more dangerous than simple ignorance because it's really about thought control. In school, a washing away of the innate power of individual mind takes place, a cleansing so comprehensive that original thinking becomes difficult. If you don't believe this development was part of the intentional design of schooling, you should read William Torrey Harris's The Philosophy of Education. Harris was the U.S. Commissioner of Education at the turn of the century and the man most influential in standardizing our schools. Listen to the man. Quote, 99 students out of 100, writes Harris, are automata, careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed custom, end quote. This is not an accident, Harris explains, but the, quote, result of substantial education, which scientifically defined, is the subsumption of the individual, end quote. And this is why we homeschool, and this is why a lot of folks say homeschooled kids are weird. You know what? The majority reason why you think homeschooled kids are so weird is because they're individuals in a way that the public schools were designed from the outset at the core to keep people from being individuals because individuals are hard to control. Individuals who have minds that they employ are hard to manipulate. They're hard to use. They're hard to abuse. They're hard to destroy when they become a threat. Individuals so the statists thought, so the leftist program has concluded individuals are a problem that needs to be solved. Again, and this is why we homeschool. Harris Rigby over at Not the Bee. Hunter Biden lived in-house with classified documents while he was making millions from ties to Chinese intelligence. Hmm. Who can tell us what to think about that? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? This is corrupt. It's traitorous. It's treacherous. It's evil. It not only looks bad, it is bad, objectively. Here's a winner of a quote from White House Press Secretary, KGP, as she's known shorthand. We are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced. Edward Snowden tweeted this out. I was sent a screenshot by my cousin Brent. Edward Snowden's comment was, man, I should have thought of that one. <laughs> we are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently 
misplaced. Karine, Jean-Pierre, no duh. No duh. This is corrupt. Consider that a nation of individuals who prioritize highly being well-read and thinking deeply, and they don't see that as being an outlier which is too high for them to attain themselves. But they see it as a good and worthy and honorable goal, inseparable from maturation and the cultivation and investment of what God has entrusted to them, what they are stewards of on loan from God. Would a nation of individuals who have not had the ability to think drummed out of them and replaced with sexual immorality of every kind imaginable, replaced with critical race theory pre-thought thoughts, as long as you call them something else, would a nation of individuals capable of thinking independently based on truth coming to their own conclusions have put Joe Biden in the White House and kept him there? Or put all of the other people who are in a position to be able to remove Joe Biden legally, impeaching him and removing him from office, into their positions? No, indeed. Oh, my people, your guides have misled you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths, Isaiah 3 reads. Infants are your oppressors, and women rule over you. I'm going to play another clip here, because we have been talking about men needing to be manly, men needing to be good husbands and good fathers, and engage in their business, not as sluggards, not as fools. Here's a clip of Mark Driscoll discussing daddy issues in the young, restless, and reformed movement. And then I have some thoughts. Take a listen. So Abba, right, in Aramaic, daddy. Not just daddy. Yeah. So there was a guy named Jerome. I'm your nerd friend. He wrote a little article, but he says that Daddy is a word that little kids would use. Dad is more that old and young. Mm. And so God is our dad. Mm. And if you're little, you'll call him daddy. But you and I, we're 40 years. Yeah. You know, how old are you? 48. 48. That's me yeah. too. Must be the perfect age. How old's your dad? 72. My dad, my pops just turned 70. Okay. Okay. And I don't call him daddy. Yeah. Uh, but when I call him, I call him pops. Yeah. Or dad. And I really love my dad. He's met Jesus. He's doing Mm -hmm. great. Dad, if you're listening, I love you and I'm proud of you and look forward to seeing you soon. Um, It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. Number one, you always have a dad. Mm -hmm. Number two, you always need a dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into us, what happened is in the Old Testament, they referred to God as Father about 19 times. It was always national, not individual. Mm -hmm. Jesus comes along in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, I think it is. He speaks of Father 165 times. Mm -hmm. It's his number one favorite title for God the Father. Mm. For God, I should say his Father. No one in the history of the world had taught that. Mm. It was revolutionary. And what it shows is this intimate, warm, affectionate so for those of you men who are listening and you have a hard time relating to God, if you have ever held your son, mm. God loves you like that. Mm. God is devoted to you like that. God cares for you like that. Mm. For a man, it's a radical thing to think God loves me as a son, mm-hmm. you know, and he's my father. Mm-hmm. So Jesus teaches us to pray our father. He'll be my little riff. Um, now you got me a little bit of preaching, but I think everybody's view of God is a projection or a rejection of the earthly father. Mm. Yeah, you and Freud. 
Atheism says, yeah. I have no dad. Agnosticism said, I never met him and I'm not looking for him. Deism says, he used to be here, but he left. He lives far away. Mm-hmm. Progressivism says, my dad is more like a big brother, permissive parent, lets me do what I want. Right. Arminianism is, I, I have a dad who lets me make my own choices, doesn't tell me what to do. Reformed theology is, I have a dad who is powerful. Uh, he is in charge. He's non-relational. He lives far away. And don't make him mad because he can get angry really fast and hurt you. Right. And and then feminism comes along and says, let's just be raised by a single parent called God as mother. Mm. And so th- almost every theological group within Christianity is somehow a rejection or projection of their earthly father. And the problem is they're starting with their earthly father and looking up. They're not starting with their heavenly father and looking down mm. and judging their earthly fathers. Yeah. So I think I've gone so far as to say, I think the whole young restless reform movement, Time Magazine said I was... One of the thought leaders that helped create that, I'm not even, I don't hold to the five points of Calvinism. I think it's garbage, but, um, so blog about that. But anyways, um, because it's not biblical, but nonetheless, that whole young restless reform, God is father, but he's distant. He's mean, he's cruel. He's non-relational. He's far away. Hmm. That's their view of their earthly father. So then they pick dead mentors, right? Spurgeon, Calvin, Luther. These are little boys with father wounds mm. who are looking for spiritual fathers. So they pick dead guys who are not going to actually get to know them or correct them. Right. And then they join networks run by other young men mm. so that they can all be brothers. There's no fathers. Right. Um, and they love, love, love Jesus because they love the story where the son is the hero mm-hmm. because they're the sons mm. with father wounds. Right. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father but by me. Right. Jesus forgives you, mm. and the father heals you. Yeah. The reason that Jesus saves you is to get you to your dad. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are forgiven, and they're not healthy because they don't know their dad. Yeah. Okay, so let's tie this in. <laughs> Is Driscoll right? Is he wrong? Is he way out in left field? Is he partially right? (laughs) I would say he is partially right. And here's why I say that. Because I've heard all sides extrapolate from their experience with their own dads that here's their view of God. And I have lost count of the number of sermons where a pastor will talk about God as father and reference and whether they use the language or they don't, it's the concept that matters that is now infused into our way of looking at way of processing way of thinking about our faith. It's the mode of thought. It's not even the thought itself. It's the way of arriving at a conclusion that has to be unpacked here. Pastor after pastor in sermon after sermon, I have heard agree with this premise that some of us have a hard time viewing God as father because we had an abusive father or a negligent father or a father who set a bad example or made very bad choices or wasn't there or didn't protect us or was hurtful in the things that he said and didn't say. And the vernacular in our day is father wounds. We say all of the above there, all of the ways that our fathers have disappointed or hurt us actively or passively. Those are father wounds and pastor after pastor and sermon after sermon has agreed with this premise that we need to put aside the way we think of fathers, humanly speaking, and 
recognize that all of the very best aspects of a healthy relationship between a child and their father, that's what fits God as a good father. Jesus says, which of you fathers, even though you're evil, if your child asks you for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? How much more so your heavenly father, who's good, he's not evil like you, how much more so your heavenly father, delighting to give good gifts to his children, how much more so will he give good gifts? If even you corrupt fathers will give good gifts to your children, how much more so will your heavenly father give good gifts when you ask him? So Driscoll's not all wrong here. It's not just that he's painting in broad brushes. Anytime you deal in generalities, you have to paint with some broad brushes. Broad brushes have their places. Some of the particulars, we can respectfully disagree or push back on and say, well, that's okay. That's an overly broad brush. Some of the detail work here you were supposed to do is not all supposed to be one color. <laughs> you know, what what kind of a painter would take a canvas and paint the whole thing, just a solid yellow? Yeah, whoop-de-doo. That was a, a great deal of skill. You painted it. Yes, you did. And you are a painter. Yes, you are. But yeah, it was not robust. It actually didn't take a lot of work. And let me tie this back to what Gatto was saying about the public education system having conditioned the majority of us for a hundred years to not think so much as look for pre-thought thoughts from experts and then weigh and measure and quantify who is the smartest, who's the most successful, who will be the most handsomely rewarded socially and financially, professionally, politically, based on their ability to memorize and recall other people's thoughts. Let's apply that to the problem insofar as it has been a problem, is a problem. Many I know would say that it is a problem that Mark Driscoll got as popular, as influential, as powerful as he did and is still around. And now I, I'm going to be an outlier here. I'm going to be a contrarian on all sides. And I'm going to say I reserve the right to disagree with anybody short of God himself, including Mark Driscoll and including those who want to just completely dismiss Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll has some issues that he's had to work through and no doubt is still needing to work through. So did Martin Luther. So did John Calvin. So did John Knox. So did Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So did Jonathan Edwards. So did Billy Graham. So did the Apostle Paul, if you'll remember. Whatever his thorn in the flesh was, we don't know. He prayed and asked God to remove it. And whatever it was, God responded with, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is shown perfectly in weakness. And basically, Paul was told to be content with this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, whether it was a sin issue, whether it was a physical ailment, whether it was pride, whatever it was, my grace is sufficient for you. Mark Driscoll can be right in some of the things that he's pointing out and how we will be able to make use of what he is saying without falling prey, falling victim to some things he's communicating that might not be so good, but they're confidently spoken. So you, know, you, you got to pick whether to totally reject him or totally embrace him <laughs> as the conventional uh, attitude goes, is we think individually and diligently and not, you know, we, we think diligently and not 
as sluggards would. And, and we don't be wise in our own eyes, nor do we permit others, however popular, however worthwhile, some things that they will say, to become wise in their own eyes, to be foolish, to talk nonsense without being corrected. Part of the reason why he's painting with some broad brushes here is because there's a tendency to either wholesale embrace what somebody is saying or to totally write them off. And it's present in the church as well. The church has its own form of cancel culture, which is not so good. Not so good for our spiritual health. But let me ask the question. If Mark Driscoll is onto something, if he's close to a true assessment of various ways of answering the question of God's existence, extrapolated from the experience that we have in relation to our earthly fathers, if he's right, and that that's part of what is informing Arminians and Calvinists and deists and agnostics and atheists and feminists and leftists. Let me ask you, what kind of a view of God are we contributing, shall we say, to our children forming, either rightly or wrongly, based on our decisions, our representation as earthly fathers? That's a sobering question. That's a sobering question that we really ought to grapple with when there are issues that pertain to provision and protection of our children, including their education, including putting food on the table and a roof over heads and clothes on backs, including what instruction we give them, how we talk with them, to them, about them, around them, how we spend our time, what kind of an impression are we giving them of who God is? And have we put these things in those terms? You know, going back to the political engagement, one of the reasons I want to sit down with some men from our local church and our local community who are Christians, who love Jesus, who have a conviction that we need to be more engaged in the civic responsibilities that we all have as Christians in an outspoken way, with intentionality, with faithfulness, with sobriety, with energy, is that I am mindful of the kind of example I'm setting for my sons, not just that I'm looking at, oh, well, that's time I could have been spending with my sons. No. What kind of an example am I setting for my sons by whether I completely neglect this area of my responsibility or if I engage it diligently and encourage other men to do likewise? Not just am I hanging out playing Valheim. That's great. I'm going to play a computer game with my sons this weekend. I hope we're going to sit down and watch a movie together tonight and eat homemade pizza. I hope. But if that's all we do, if that's all we ever do, then when they grow up, they will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. That has to come into play. That has to be factored in. The independent thought, that's going to need to be encouraged not just modeled, not just talked about. It has to be encouraged, protected, nurtured, cultivated. Consider here Jeremiah 6, and I'll conclude with this. Jeremiah chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they shall glean thoroughly as a vine, the remnant of Israel. Like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning? that they may hear. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. 
Behold, the word of Yahweh is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of Yahweh. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, verse 16, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations and know, O congregation, what will happen to them here? O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Verse 22, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor, go not out into the field, nor walk on the road. For the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. For suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I have made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain, the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver, they are called, for Yahweh has rejected them. And what does that mean? What is Jeremiah talking about? How does this pertain only in this? God's character has not changed. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>